Bible this morning. Beginning our reading this morning, we've got a lot of ground to cover. So as one old preacher used to say, I'm going to preach quick so you'll have to listen quick. Alright, Luke chapter 5, verse 33 to begin. And they said unto him, that's unto Christ, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink. And he said unto them, Can ye make the children of the bride chamber fast? while the bridegroom is with them. Uh, But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. And he spake also a parable unto them. Uh, No man putteth a piece of new garment upon upon an old, if otherwise then both, the new maketh a rent or a rip, tear, and the piece that was uh, taken not of the new uh, agreeeth not with the old. And no man putteth new wine uh, into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and uh, be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. No man also, having drank old wine straightway, desireth new, for he saith, the old is better. Uh, When I pastored in the mountains, one thing about the mountains, all the south is like this, but particularly in the mountains, They are set in their ways. And when I became the pastor of one of the mountain churches, we actually ate every Sunday and did an afternoon service every Sunday because everybody drove so far just to get to church. And they they drive a lot of miles, but when the miles are like this, it takes a while to get there. We would eat every afternoon, and so as it was in the custom of the mountains, the pastor would go first in line. Then the older men, then the younger men, then the older women, then the younger women, then the children. And you just did not break that order. You just didn't do it. The older men would sit up to one table and it would be the older man or the pastor at the head of the table and then as you went down the table into the younger men and the women would sit with the children. That's the way it was. That's just the way it was. Now, I became pastor at the church and after I noticed uh, brother, the pastor that was before me, his and I loved him much. His name was Richard Adams. He was a mountain man, pastored many churches. Matter of fact, he took a couple, of, he, he actually, uh, between pastors, spent a year in the jungles of Peru with Paul Washer, was a good friend of Paul Washer. Uh, Brother Adams was a great man. Uh, and, but Brother Adams had Parkinson's disease and, and he trembled much. And, and so that pastor, you take the first position, okay? 
You know, I mean, that used to bother me. I've been in the pastor about 10 or 12 years. That used to be really awkward, but I'd gotten used to it by, by then. So I took it and I went and I noticed Brother Adams went over there and he sat down. And then uh, the, uh, the men went through and then Vicki, his wife, would be at the head of the line of the women and she would make his plate and he would come over. So Brother Adams actually got his plate last of all the men because he could make his own plate. His wife had to. So I noticed that. So on the second Sunday, I said, Vicki, you come up here with me. And people were looking. As Vicki, a woman, is following the pastor as he is going through and she is making Brother Adam's play. When I come to the table, I don't sit at the head of the table. I sit directly in front of Brother Adam's. We leave the head of the table empty. And so I'm served, then Brother Adam's. And people are looking at and thing. And Vicki, she, she's like, no, 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 preacher, I can't. Am I the pastor? Yeah. Are you to obey them to have the, you're going to follow me through? I'm awkward. This isn't right. I, it is right. Brother Adams needs to be served first or second. Now, I said all that to say this. I used my authority and my privilege as the office of the pastor to change things up. And that's what we've got a chapter and a parable about. That the king has come and he has the authority and the privilege to change things up. And that's exactly what he does. Here in the text we find a parable uh, that explains just that very thing. Jesus has the authority and holds all the offices of authority and the stories that surround it show him as prophet, priest, and king, and God Almighty. Four stories that point he's God, he's the king, he's the priest, and he is a prophet. And this parable uh, is, is centered amongst these in this group and it explains all that. Now, last week's parable was an illustration to the end of a sermon. This week's parable is to explain why Jesus is doing what he's doing and what he and what he is what he is doing. And so we will get into this. Now, we want to do two things here primarily, and I don't know if we'll get through the second part or not. If we don't, we'll get it. We'll get to it in uh, uh, the next the next uh, service. But first of all, we just want to explain the parable. Parable's pretty easy to explain. But what really brings it home is when we look at the point of the parable to the stories and how it relates to what's happening around it. And we can see the point of Jesus' parable in the stories surrounding it. So let's talk about the parable. The parable Verse 33. And they said unto him, now we don't know who they are, they're, they're people here at this, Matthew's having a celebration, we'll get into that here in a little bit. 
And they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees thine eat and drink? You know what they're basically saying? Why do your disciples not act like all the, and you act like all the other religious leaders? Why are you different? You know, the, the John represents the prophets. And they came fasting. The Pharisees represent the law. And they practice fasting. You're not practicing fasting. You're not acting the way a religious leader is supposed to act. Uh, now, Jesus, Jesus, of course, is not teaching don't fast. He's not teaching don't fast while I'm here because he rebukes his disciples. In one case, you know, why, couldn't this, why couldn't we do this? Because you're not praying and fasting. This kind of only comes by prayer and fasting. So don't get mixed up with the timeline here saying, well, we have to fast while he's here and we, uh, we can't fast while he's here. No, he told him to fast while he was here and we can't celebrate when he's gone. No, we can celebrate when he's gone. That's not the point. But he says, he, but, but he answers them and he says unto them, can ye make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? And here's the short answer, because I'm not like any other religious leader. I'm not like any other prophet of God that came before me. I'm not like them. I've got a, I've got a privilege they don't have. I have an authority they never had. And now, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom. All that came before me, all that came before me in one way or another was preparing for this day. And I'm the fulfillment. It's celebration time. Do you fast? It's inappropriate. It's inappropriate for them to fast. We see that throughout the whole Old Testament. Nehemiah wants to go in and, and petition the king. You, the whole of Nehemiah, you can't go in there in the presence of a king with a sad countenance. That's not appropriate. Uh, uh, Esther, you can't go in there with a sad countenance. Daniel, you can't go in there with a sad countenance. You know that even today in British and in court. You can't, you can't do this to a king. You don't show a king your backside. You walk away. <laughs> you do not show a British or a French or a European king your backside. You step away backwards. There are certain things that are appropriate in the presence of the bridegroom. Now, who goes to a wedding and mourns and fasts. That's incompatible with the event. Now maybe some of us should, but but we uh, and, and I know I'm being silly there, but it's not it's not appropriate for the event. Well, 
John's disciples fast. And John's in prison. Maybe that's why they're fasting at that time. The Pharisees fast. They like to make a show of their fasting. But your disciples, they eat or drink. You know, Jesus said you can't, in another place, he said you can't have it right one way or the other. John came fasting. You called him, you said he had a devil. I come eating and drinking, you call me a wine bibber. You can't satisfy them. I'm the king. And I'm inaugurating my kingdom. It's, it's time to celebrate. Fasting at a wedding doesn't match. It's time for celebration. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them and then shall they fast in those days. I'm not like the others. All the others that God sent before me in one way or another just prepared for this day. They long for this day. And so he says it's incompatible. It's not right. You don't, you don't fast that away. I'm the bridegroom. But why are you celebrating when all the other religious leaders don't celebrate like this? I'm not a religious leader. I'm the bridegroom. I'm not here to lead a movement. I'm the fulfillment of all things. Verse 36. He continues, and now we get into the parable. And he spake also a parable unto them. No man putteth a new piece of, of, of garment. So he gives this here about the patching of an old garment, new garment. What we have to understand is that they didn't have pre-shrunken clothes in that day. So you take an old, tattered, wore-out garment, and you put a brand new piece of cloth on there, and you and you and you and you you patch it on there. Well, first of all, it don't look right. It don't match. Secondly, what happens when you wash it? The new cloth shrinks and rips the old, and the old's worse than it was before. What's he saying? Same thing with the bridegroom. It's incompatible. What else is he saying? Jesus didn't come to patch up your old life. Jesus doesn't ask you to give him your sinful heart. He's going to replace it, uh, your stony heart, with a heart of flesh. You know, one thing about uh, Kenny, today he finally made a good king, but it's been one week after another. We've learned how not to be a good king. I mean, one, boy, they mess up this way, they mess up this way, they mess up that way. And even the best of kings were men at best. And they had their flaws. And it's one story of failure after another. How many ways can we fail as a king? There's a king arrived that will never fail. He's not come to patch up the political system of Israel. He's not come to fix the problem. He's come to replace the problem. Jesus didn't come to repair a failed system of of the old covenant in Israel. Jesus came to replace it with a new covenant and a kingdom that will cover from shore to shore his kingdom. He's the king that will never fail. 
But he's, he didn't come to patch up the old system. The two aren't compatible. Amen. Uh, verse 37. The, the, the old wine. Same point. And that day, now the King James says bottles, but, but it's better understood as skins. You know, like a, at least you've seen them on TV where, where the old pioneers had the, had the pouches with the skins that they would use to drink. Well, what they'd do is they'd put the grapes down in these sacks, these, these leather sacks that were sewn together, and they put that grape juice down in there. And you know what happens when grape juice starts to ferment? It starts to let off gases and it stretches and it stretches and it stretches. And uh, it stretches out and then you've got wine and then you drink the wine. And, uh, and it's good. Well, if you've got that old stretched out wine skin and then you go and you fill it up with new wine or, or grape juice... There's no room for it to grow anymore because the skin's already been stretched out. And first, let me tell you something. The writer of Hebrews makes a point. If the old covenant was perfect, there would be no need for the new. He said, but it's like a garment that's waxing old and is ready to vanish away. The old covenant is like an old tattered garment. You ain't going to patch it with new cloth and make it work. It's time to get rid of it. There's, it's time to replace it. You can't, you can't take old wore out wineskins and continue. You can use them water. You can use it for, for other things, but you can't use it for fermentation. You know? Uh, he not come to rig it up. I mean, man, alive, you know? I've seen, you know, we make jokes up in Kentucky, give me some WD-40 uh, uh, bundling wire and, 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 and some pliers and, and, and I can fix about anything. And I've seen some contraptions like, what? How is that going to work? You know, I mean, I mean I've mean, i seen some contraptions. Jesus didn't come to patch the old. That's the point. Now, what is the point here in these two parables? And we'll get to the next parable. And then we want to bring out these points because now we're going to get into the real meat of the sermon here in a little bit. The stories around it because he because these parables are explaining what he's done and what he's doing. They'd ask him a question. Why aren't you doing this? And why are they doing that? Alright. First of all, Jesus came to do a new thing. A new work. A new covenant. A New Testament that causes new creations. He didn't come uh, to cure the old, but create the new. Secondly, Jesus himself is the only exclusive way. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to him. And now he has come to take the place of all those things in its fulfillment. Basically, it's all Jesus or it's none of Jesus. Amen. Now, the third point is a 
different point that he makes in verse 39, which is a little confusing because it seems to contradict what he's saying. But it isn't contradicting what he's saying. This is him not explaining, but him making application to the listener. He says, no man also, having drunk old wine, straightway desireth, for uh, he saith the old is better. Now, in this, we're going to have to show in the, the story surrounding it really illustrates this parable. That Jesus is not speaking to the quality of old wine. He is speaking about the reluctance of the drinker to change. He said the old's better. I'll come to bring the wine, but you keep saying the old's better. They're stuck in the old. Now, as I get older, the more and more I get stuck in my ways. <laughs> you know, at some at some point, and my daddy used to say, at some point the concrete hardens, other points it cracks. And I don't know if it's not crumbling at this point. You know, uh, uh, we, we get stuck in our ways. But I want you to know something. Jesus is not saying new is always better. Jesus is saying he is better than the old covenant. That's, that's what he's saying. He's not saying new is always better. But, but we have a reluctance to change. We, we want to hang on to the, we want to hang on to the old ways. But the old ways, you know, were, you know, uh, the old ways under the new covenant. Now, I'm not talking about the ways we do things. Sometimes you need to change. Sometimes you don't. And some are stuck in the past and some of us need to be stuck in the past. I, I'm not saying that. But, oh, I'm not talking about cultural change. I'm talking about the change between the system of law and to the system of grace. Now, now th this is really brought out in the text around it, that third point. Now, the context. We got four stories, and I don't know that we can get to all of them. We got four stories that all come together. You know, one of the great advantages of when they came out with a good brick press and they started putting Bibles together is that they is that they uh, they they split everything up into chapter and verse. So I can say, turn with me to Mark chapter six and look at verse seventeen. And great. But the big disadvantage of it is is the printers make the divisions, not the scholars. <laughs> it was just men reading it in the English and said, well, there's a good break here. <laughs> and they didn't look at it from, from the Greek. Where is the division? So we, we've, got, we've got four stories, and right in the, we've got two in front of it and two behind it, and right in the middle of it is Jesus, is Jesus explaining why he's doing what he is doing. Verse 20. Let's start with the first story. Now we're going to go through these quickly. We're not going to give out every detail, but just as they relate to the parable. Verse 20. They brought a paralyzed man, and, I, and I'm giving you a hybrid of this, and Mark will we'll be over in Mark chapter 2 here in a little bit, and you can also look at Matthew chapter 9, but 
But, but there's a paralyzed man. Jesus is preaching in the house. They've lowered, they've torn the roof off four men. They've lowered the bed down into the house. And when Jesus saw, and it says in verse 20, and when he saw their faith, not the man's faith, but the men that led him's faith, he said unto him, man, thy sins are forgiven thee. What? Now, have your sins forgiven in the old way? You got to go down to the temple. You got to make sacrifice. You've got to give atonement. You got to do a whole lot of stuff. You got to jump through a whole lot of hoops. And this man just said, What? And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now that is true. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say, uh, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man, now that is his Davidic title, that is his Masonic title, that is his kingly title. That the Son of Man hath power or authority to forgive upon earth to forgive sins. He said unto the man, sick of the palsy, completely paralyzed. I say unto thee, arise, take up thy, uh, thy uh, couch and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them and took up uh, that uh, wherein he lay and departed out of his house, glorifying God. And when and they were all amazed, and they glorified God and were filled with their uh, with fear, saying, "We have seen strange things today." I like the way Mark chapter two says it. We've never seen it after this way before. I know you haven't because we've got a new king who's come to bring a new way. And he is forgiven sins. They've challenged him. They've challenged him. This isn't the way sins are forgiven. This isn't the process of the Old Testament. No, I'm the one who forgives sins. I'm the only one that forgives sins. And let me tell you something. If Jesus says your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Amen. It's just that simple. Can you imagine that thief on the cross as, he's, as he says today, you'll be with me in paradise. And, and Alistair Begg kind of made a lengthy soliloquy of this. I'll bring it down and he comes to the thing. Well, what right do you have to come in here? What religion have you ever practiced? I haven't. I'm a thief. I'm, 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 well, what have you ever done? What do you know about the Bible? What do you know about that? I don't know anything about that. All I know is the man on the middle cross that I could come. Uh, how is this man's sense for it? Doesn't even say he expressed faith. Says his friends expressed faith. But, but the Lord can say, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Thy sins are forgiven thee. Jesus is the only exclusive way to have your sins forgiven. Amen. And this is a completely different way than anything that's ever been ever brought in the Old Testament. Well, don't stop there. 
Verse 27, he goes on. After these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi uh, sitting at the receipt of customs at the tax table. He's a publican. This is a scandalous thing. This is a scandalous thing. Let me just say this quickly. I, uh, I gotta say this. I mean, I mean, tax collectors were the equivalent today of mafia extortionists. Listen to the IRS. This isn't a flat. This isn't. Let's, let's, okay, well, you got that. No, no, they, they, they took what they wanted, and as long as they gave Rome a portion, they could take as much as they wanted. They could take 20% from one man and 80% from another man. Men of power, men that could fight back, they took less. Men that were weak and down on their luck, they took more because they could. These were extortionists. And they were the most hated of anybody in, in Israel. And they're not just, I mean, that guy just isn't a turncoat working for the Roman government. He's the guy who has robbed me of my wages. And Jesus comes over and says, follow me. And you know what he does? You know what happens when the master calls? We follow. Amen. And Matthew followed him. No questions. Matthew followed him. He rose up and he followed him. And Levi, as he calls him here, which is Matthew, why does he call him Levi? Because he's a Levite. He's going to have a party. He's going to celebrate. He's going to celebrate. Now, let me say something. There's nothing sinful going on here. There's nothing sinful going on here. Liberals love to twist thing, this thing up and say, and say, oh, well, I go down to the nightclub because Jesus partied with sinners. Jesus didn't party with sinners the way you're talking about it. Jesus called Matthew to repentance and other sinners came. When they were in Jesus' presence, they came to repentance. He wasn't sitting there taking part and condoning their sin. No, 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 don't get that twisted. But the, but the scribes and the Pharisees murmured against the disciples, well, why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Why is he doing what he's doing? He ain't like any other religious leader, is he? No, man, he just, he just told a man who didn't even ask for forgiveness that he was forgiven and healed. <laughs> and now he just walks up to an old, dirty uh, public enemy, number one of the nation of Israel. He, I mean, I mean, I mean, this guy's worse than the communist. And he says, "Come," he said, "Follow me." And they're at their house and they're celebrating and rejoicing. And why are you doing this? And when he said, we're all sinners, but when it says sinners here, it means notorious sinners. He's got publicans and everything. And you know the guy that's richest in town that runs the extortion racket? He runs all the vices. He funds all the vices underneath it. And that's his friends. And this is a different way. He's, he's supposed to be somebody and he's hanging out with scum? 
He's down there with Don Corleone and the, and the Rocket and Nevada Bob and Uncle Pimp and Prostitute. You know what Jesus answered? He's, he's, Jesus is doing this different, isn't he? And he answered and said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Oh, why do you do this, Jesus? Every time he keeps circling it back to whom? To whom? To whom? To himself. That you may know that I'm the Son of Man who forgives sins. Now, why are you eating and drinking with him? Because I'm the great physician. I'm the only one that he can heal. Jesus healed in many different ways for a point. To show you it wasn't the way Jesus healed. It was the fact that it was Jesus doing the healing. But here he is healing him of his most dreaded disease. His sin disease. I came not to call the righteous. But sinners to repent. Jesus is the one that calls us to repent. Now he's a prophet. Now he's a prophet. What does a prophet do? A prophet calls as one to speaks the words of God and calls men and women to repent. John is called the greatest prophet. And what did John do? Preach repentance. What did all the prophets do? They preached repentance towards God. Jesus didn't preach. Jesus preached repentance towards him because he is God. He didn't call men to God. He called men to himself. And they said, and then now we get into the context of the parable. Then the question of the parable. We've got two more stories. I don't think we'll get to those two more stories. We might. But I want to bring out some points. Can you not hear the skepticism in the question? Who can forgive sins? They charge him with blasphemy. He answered. I have the authority to forgive sins. The new wine of healing. By the, and I have the new authority on earth to forgive sins. It's not in the temple and the priest anymore. It's in me. Can't you hear the shock? We've never seen it done like this before. I know. He's brought new wine. He's given us a new garment. Who eats with such low lives? The prophet, the physician, the healer of men's souls. Why does all the others fast? And he celebrates. Because I'm the bridegroom. He is the answer to every question. Why do you do what you do? Because I am who I am. And I didn't come to fix your broken system. I didn't come to repair your torn righteousness. I didn't come to patch up the old covenant. I've come with a new covenant. And not after the way that the covenant was made with your fathers, 
For I will be their God and they will be my people. And I will give them a new heart. I'm the bridegroom. They're my people. And then the whole time with each question, you know what we're hearing? And their skepticism? I prefer the old way. I like the old one better. I like the old one better. Now, if you will, we might get one of these done. Turn over with me to the book of Mark, chapter 2. I want to go through this. I think I can push through pretty quick. Mark, chapter 2, same story. I'm just taking this to Mark because Mark is a little quicker, a little, and so maybe we can be a little quicker here. And I've got Luke down, but so we're just going to hybrid Mark to try to move through it. Mark moves a little quicker. Look with me in Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Now you see in verse 22, he's talking about the bottles and everything. Verse 22, and it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day. Uh oh. And the disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. It's, it's wheat, actually. What they would do, they'd pluck it up and then they would put it in their hands like that. Now, that would remove all the outward and then they could eat it, which was legal to do when you were traveling, going through someone's wheat field. Whatever you could pick up and eat as you go through the wheat field, they couldn't take any out of the wheat field. Whatever you could do, while you're moving, and just sit there, <laughs> but while you're moving through the wheat field, you can pull and you can eat. That part is legal. I want to make sure that we don't get confused about that. It isn't what they're doing, it's when they're doing it that is where the question is. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath Day, that which is not lawful. Well, why are you breaking the law? Now, did, did, did he look at it and say, I'm not breaking the Old Testament law? No, he didn't. Matter of fact, he doubles down that he is. He doubles down on it. Look at his response. He said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he had need and was a hungered, he and they that were with him, I'm not going to go through the whole story, just explain this so we can get through it. It's self-explanatory. David and his men were hungry. They came upon the, uh, the temple and they went in and they did that which was unlawful on the Sabbath. How he went into the house of God in the days of Athnar the high priest and did eat the showbread which is not lawful to eat before the priest and gave also to them that were which were with him thank you that's, that's not lawful yeah I know and did, did you ever read about David when he went in on the Sabbath day he ate the showbread off the table you're talking about not lawful. He ate which without which he wasn't allowed to eat. It was only for the priest. You ever read that? 
Well, what is he saying here? Now, I want to tell you what he's not saying here. He is not saying that your our felt needs trump the law of God. That is not what he's saying. What is he saying? You're worried about the rules. Let me remind you, I'm the ruler. <laughs> they had a kingly privilege sheet from that day. And I'm eating under the same kingly privilege that David had. When you're the ruler, you don't have, when you're the Pope, not like the president. A king is not like a president. It's the king's decrees. It's his rules. He can play by them or not. Do you, do, hey, let me ask you some questions, parent. Uh, answer it out loud. Do, uh, are your children allowed to do everything you can do? Well, no. David was the king. Jesus is the king. Well, how do you know that's what he said? Because he because he comes on down here and he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. It's my day. It's my day. I can do what I want to on my day. It's my day. It's, it's, it's not that y'all can break any law that you want to, but the king has privileges. No, the prophets, they mourned over their sin and they fasted over their sin and they waited for the day where they could come and celebrate my arrival. And me and my disciples aren't going hungry when we're walking through the wheat field. I know it's unlawful, but I'm the lawgiver. <laughs> I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, now, he does say that the new way is the true way. He says, just so y'all understand something. The Sabbath, man was not created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man. Amen. Y'all got, I mean, the, the, man, the, the, the Pharisees loved and got hung up on the Sabbath day. They have volumes of books of what you can do on the Sabbath. They literally have it in there now. If a guy gets a splinter in his finger and he leaves it there on the Sabbath day, is he carrying a burden? But if he digs it out, is he digging? Can you eat an egg that's laid on the Sabbath day? I had a preacher friend not too long ago, and I'm not making fun of him. I won't say his name. Um, but on a Sunday night after church, uh, I, I said, you know, I, I can fix you something to eat. I knew he was a little particular about the Sabbath. And I said, uh, what he calls the Sabbath, Jesus is the Sabbath. He said, I said, I said, I can go back to the house. You know, I'm a single guy. I ain't got a wife back there that slaved all day to uh, make sure that you are satisfied with your Sabbath law. Maybe I'll get that sarcasm. Maybe you won't. Uh, I said, but I can go over there and make you some frozen pizzas. And I can make you some food. Or we can go out. He goes, I don't know about going out. I said, well, oh, oh, you're good. The sun's down. Oh, it is, isn't it? You know why? Because the day in the Old Testament is from, we've got to reverse. We go morning to night, 
Actually, technically, the first day of the week is Saturday night. From Saturday, uh, Saturday night when the sun goes down to when the sun goes down on Sunday. So, so when the sun goes down today, technically, biblically, we're out of the first day of the week. And I said, so we can go out to eat the sun's down. He said, you're right. Oh, boy. If the sun was up, we couldn't go out to eat. You're more, you're worried more about the rules than the ruler. Amen. He's got kingly privilege. He can do what he wants. That's why Paul in Galatians said, you know, the, the schoolmaster was to bring you to Christ. Then once you come to Christ, you don't need the schoolmaster anymore. The schoolmaster was like the law. Let me make this point real quick. I got to, uh, I took over a church camp at a church that I pastored quite a few years ago now. It was a larger church, the largest church I pastored. They had a church camp, but the pastor who was before me was elderly. He couldn't go. So he had a younger man in the church that went. And so what would happen every year is, every year he would have one counselor say uh, about a rule, because the, the camp itself had certain rules. And they would say, well, now, you know, uh, the rule says she has to cover up, go into the swimming pool. Uh, uh, but we made a rule saying you couldn't wear a t-shirt. And then the other one go, but her t-shirt that she's got on covers her life. They would argue back and forth over this rule. And then you had, and, and, and he, oh, you're right. You're right. No leadership. You're right. So they'd come back every year, and they'd come back every year, and they would fight about it, and they'd make up another rule. And, and, and a two-piece piece of paper that, 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 that was the camp's rules, which were good rules, and they got gotten them secretary in a workbook, man. I mean, you have rules upon rules upon rules upon rules. And I walked in, and they said, well, we got to go with the rule book. I said, we sure did. I went to rip it, but it was like a phone book. You couldn't rip it, so I threw it in the trash can. At least I couldn't. I said, I got one rule. What's that? The rule book's gone. Why? Because now you have a leader. And you know what? I ain't afraid to tell you no. If something, well, what are we doing? Something comes up. Come to me. We've got the rules of the camp. The camp rules are pretty good. No need to build a thousand rules upon a thousand rules upon a thousand rules. Just come to me in each situation and we'll, we'll figure it out. And if, and if you don't like my verdict, you'll get over it or you can get gone. You know what? Because I don't need a million and one rules upon rules upon rules upon rules uh, and a camp to direct a camp when you got a camp director who's not afraid to tell someone in a sweet spirit no. And you know what? I don't need ten thousand. I don't need. I don't need ten thousand rules when I've got the Lord Jesus rule in my heart. And so we've we've got the ruler. Now he proves that he's the Lord of the Sabbath in chapter three, and I'm just going to give you a quick summary of it. Chapter three, verse seven. They, we look into the heart of the apostles, or into the heart of the uh, one, chapter 3, 1 through 7. We look in, take a glimpse into the mind and heart of the Pharisee. And you see, let me say it like this, that they were like, oh my goodness, if he comes, 
What if he tries to heal somebody? Then we've got him. Never ever underestimate a Pharisee's ability to turn a blessing into a burden. Every one of these are blessings. They didn't want Matthew to repent. They didn't want this man to be healed of a withered hand. And you can read it later. Phariseeism is controlling and shaming anyone who doesn't do what we do. Now I grew up around a lot of legalists and a lot of Pharisees. And it's not, it's not, it's not about the rules. It's not about the rules. I know one, I know people that are far more liberal than me that are Pharisees, and people that, that are far more stricter than I that I don't consider legalistic at all. It's an attitude of exclusion and control and shaming those. It's an attitude of elitism. It's not even necessarily a religious attitude. You know why? Because they, 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 they got together with the Herodians to see how they could kill him in this. Well, you want to talk about strange bedfellows? That's like the communists and the fascists coming together and saying, we got to get rid of these guys. That's like, that's like the Tea Party and the Socialists coming together and saying, we got to take care of these guys. I mean, two opposite ends of the spectrum, the Herodians and the Pharisees. But control and love of money will make strange bedfellows. But it's an attitude of elitism fueled by an ideology. And in this, it's a religious ideology. And it's and it's uh, it's definitely there's definitely a new Phariseeism that's alive. It doesn't have to be religious. All it says is 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 we are going to cancel you, shame you, and put you out of the group if you break any of our rules. Now let me say this: I'm not going to get into this deep or give you a big opinion on him. We've all heard of Elon Musk. Under every category that you can list, Elon Musk, I'm not putting him down, I'm just stating a fact, is a liberal. He built the company because he believes in global warming, he's an atheist, he believes in abortion rights, he believes in every gay right there ever was, uh, he, he, he actually, he, he believes that, that uh, as, as, as we mechanize the, the assembly lines, we just need to pay the lower, the lower intelligent people money just to stay home. I mean, he is as, as liberal as he can be. But there's one thing Elon Musk has that, does, that the liberals don't like. He does believe in freedom of speech. And there was a day when for 30 years, that's all we heard was liberals saying, everybody ought to have the right to speak. And they fought for the, uh, the racial minorities to have the right to speak. I agree with them. They, they even said that those that are have sexual proclivities, we'll put it that way, they have certain rights. As citizens, I think they do have certain rights. You disagree with me. You know, this isn't a theocracy. This is a democracy. 
and everybody needs to be treated right, and, and so forth, and they have the right and express, and every, it's what we call civil liberties. But then, once they got the civil liberties of all the groups they wanted, they tried to take away anybody's civil liberty that didn't agree with them. And Elon Musk said, now that is hypocritical. And so what have they done? They put it out of the group. <laughs> They put him out of the group. Martina Navratilova, I believe her name is, one of the greatest women tennis players of all time, has always been an open lesbian. She's always been. She's lived her life as an open lesbian. She has campaigned for every right there was. But then some guy gets a sex change operation and becomes a woman and one of these transgenders and he enters in women's professional tennis and she said and who and and she says no, 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 that ain't right that ain't right you know she'll it'll it I'll say it I don't know what she said but it'll dominate the sport that ain't right for a man to be playing women's sports you know what they did with her they branded her transphobic and her out. You know what? You don't meet our pattern. You're out of the group. We'll shame you. We'll cancel you. And so my point of bringing up these extreme liberals is don't tell me that this is just something of conservative people. And don't tell me it's just something that's bred by religion. I have a very good friend who I respect very much, who I who preaches a very doctrinal message, but he pastors a church that worships in a very contemporary way. I take his message over a whole lot of people's message, and he preaches in a way I wouldn't preach, or in attire and dress and different things. I was talking to him one day, and I said, "I said, no, let me ask you something now. Come on, tell me the truth." Be honest with me. I said, if I showed up to your church dressed in my suit and pants and tie and sat down on your front row, would your church sit back and say, there's a Pharisee. Don't believe this. Everyone has a thing you have to do certain with it and would they do that? So they're judging my heart by my outward appearance. I realize conservative churches, hey, look, we do that. We're guilty of the same thing. I don't, I, I'm not comfortable wearing blue jeans and a polo when I preach. But I want to tell you something that man preaches more truth from God's word than most men I know that wear a suit. I'm not going to judge him based on what he wears. And they shouldn't judge me based on what I wear. It's Phariseeism on both sides. So it isn't that the Pharisees are concerned about right. They're concerned about doing what they do. And controlling them. Jesus proves he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He asked the man to do what the man could not do. Now it says a withered hand. I mean, this man don't have a hurt hand. He don't have a bruised hand. He has a deformed, withered up hand. He asks him to bring it forth. He does what he cannot do. You know why? 
Because when Jesus calls us to do what we cannot do, he gives us the ability to do it. That's grace. I cannot believe. I cannot repent. I cannot live righteously. But when Jesus calls me to do something, he calls me, he gives me the grace to do it. Now, in this last story, and, and read it as, as, as time this afternoon, you're, we're one or two people in this story. We're either the man with the withered hand, or we're the Pharisee. Now, Elvis sung that song years ago, I did it my way. Well, that's, that's not really a good song. I love Elvis, but that's not really a good song. You ought to do it his way. But the Pharisees are like, you do it my way. <laughs> my way is the only way. I had, a, I had a boss one time, and that's fine on the work side. He said, there's three ways to get things done. There's the right way, the wrong way, and there's my way. And you get paid to do it my way. <laughs> Every now and then I say, well, no, wouldn't it be my way? It's your way, your paycheck, your way. So, but, my, but, but the point is, we're not, we're not running, a, we're not talking about employment here, we're talking about salvation. We're talking about including people. You see, uh, Pharisees want to exclude anybody from the group that's different than them. They want to, they, they want to, they want to judge people based on the outward uh, and, and not the inward. The old song says, nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. Jesus bring, gives us new wine, a new heart, a new life. Makes us a new creation. Doesn't fix up our old life, he gives us a new life. He doesn't reform us, he reborns us. <laughs> he doesn't bring reformation, he brings regeneration. That's a new beginning. Jesus brings new beginnings, but you know what? Here's the thing. I don't care which way it is. I don't care if it's the Jewish way, the Muslim way, the Hindu way, the atheist way, the secular humanist way. I don't care if it's the Jesus plus church membership, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus living a good life, Jesus plus... Uh, uh, doing the works of the law. If it's not Jesus and all of Jesus, it's none of Jesus. He's not only the way, he's the only way. And nothing can be added to it. You can't add it to it. Who can forgive sins? Only Jesus. Who can cause to repentance? Only Jesus. Who can heal us? of our sins as the great physician. Only Jesus. Who is the fulfillment of everything of the Old Testament? Who is the bridegroom that's collecting the people for the coming of the Lord? Only Jesus. Who's the Lord of the Sabbath and all the rules of the Old Testament? Jesus. It's his way or no way. 